This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Yes, welcome back. Another week of the College Football Fix. Dan Walken here with Paul Meyerberg. Paul, uh, you got $7.5 million by chance just laying uh, around on the couch cushions? Let me just go on my – let me check. Well, how much am I getting paid this Friday? No, I don't. You I'm don't have $7.5 million? I have like $7.50 right here. I've got five. I have $6.00. I have six dollars. So, and and your four hundred one k is probably not doing so well at the moment. No, oh no, oh no, oh god, no, no. I don't have seven and a half million. What would you do if you had seven and a half million dollars? I'd buy, buy Steve a... Sarkeesian's house. No, Tell actually, what, I, would, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't pay seven and a half million. I'd come in low. He's obviously a motivated seller. I'd come in at maybe six, 60 bucks, sixty five bucks, and we'd start our negotiation. Have you looked at the house yet? You gone through the pictures? Yeah, yeah. We're, so we're recording this podcast on on Tuesday morning, and and right before we started, I saw a tweet from the Austin American Statesman that basically says Steve Sarkeesian's house is on the market. Now, I would not read anything into this in terms of you know job security or anything like that. I I think we both feel like Sark's not getting fired anytime soon, right? I mean, we need to talk about Texas, but he's not going to get fired, right? Probably not. I just want to say my okay. Let me get this right. My uncle's cousin's boyfriend's sister has a friend who works at a cable installation company, and this person told all these people who then told me that uh, Nick Saban did a tour of Sark's house the other day. I'm just saying. I'm going to put it out there. My brother's friends, uncles, cousins, sisters, boyfriend who works at the cable installation company is telling me this. So I don't know. And did they see Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night? (laughs) Yeah, they did. Exactly. Um, Sark's not obviously selling his house because he's getting fired or has been fired. I just think he looked at that house and thought, man, I don't like this place. I don't like this, this like home goods staged uh, fixer upper style Texas home (laughs) built by a HDTV crew. (laughs) That's what it looks like to me. It looks like the home... HGTV does their like million dollar home giveaway or seven and a half million dollar home giveaway. And it's just an atrocious collection of like all the things that are currently in vogue. That's what Sark's house looks like the way it's stitched. Well, I can promise you it is not a fixer upper. Um, you can go, if you want to take a look at it, I've, it's on my Twitter account. I, I retweeted the original thing and you can ch- click on the link at Zillow and it, Shows you all the pictures. And look, I mean, it's a perfectly nice house. Uh, I'll read you the um, description. Bright and beautiful, soft, contemporary, rolling wood home built in 2014 and updated in 2021. Square footage does not include nearly 1,000 square foot of garage space and over 500 square feet of covered outdoor living. The main level's open floor plan includes an owner's suite with expansive bath, private office laundry room, and guest suite. Second level has three beds with ensuite baths, a secondary office, a media room, and a secondary laundry room. Two laundry rooms, two. <laughs> Outdoor living is first rate with pool, spa, fire pit area, and putting green. Um, look, I, I, I don't want to disparage this house because, like, my house is certainly not this nice. And it certainly would not list for anything close to $7.5 million dollars. 
but this does not look like a seven and a half million dollar house. I mean, no. Is this what Austin is now? Is Austin like Beverly Hills? I think it's gone crazy. The market there, bright, beautiful, and soft. By the way, is how I describe Texas football. Um, <laughs> it, it is pretty bright, beautiful, and soft. Right, but I think that this house, um, it's not for me. It's fine personally. If I'm a big time college football coach and I've and I'm getting paid an enormous sum of money, I, I like. I would put a lot of thought into staying at an embassy suites. <laughs> I really mean it. I really mean it. Like when coaches get the job, like when Sark or whoever gets that job, they're in an embassy suites for like a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month. Oh, more than that. Like, more than that. Yeah, at yeah. least until their family gets there, they sell their old house, whatever. I think staying at an embassy suites permanently, and I, I'm not looking for any sort of stuff from embassy suites. Does embassy suites, who owns that? I, I think that's anyway. a Hilton. That's Hilton. Yeah. yeah, that's trash. Who cares? Embassy Suites, that's where I would stay. I wouldn't want to worry about, why do I need two washers? I should be, I'm not even going to be at home. Well, the thing is, you need a place to do all those recruiting parties. Like, Nick Saban has allegedly an entire wing of his house that is only for recruiting. Essentially, when they do those recruiting weekends, that you end up, like, everyone is just in that wing and so people actually don't go in the regular house that he right. lives in and stays in, which is actually pretty smart if you're Nick Saban. Dabo Sweeney, I think, might have a similar setup at his house that he built in Clemson, something like that. Um, so you got to have some place to do the recruiting parties. And I don't think the lobby of the embassy suites sort of gives you the ambiance <laughs> that you're looking for. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I think that's probably lacking um, the bells and whistles. I would just – I'd give it a lot of thought. Like, I mean, you nice got to sell a house. It's nice, a pool. nice pool, yeah. you know, but, but, and I, I look, I, I've not talked, talked to Sark about this and I don't know what's going on. I, I would imagine it's just, you know, your standard real estate transaction. Um, there was some sort of conversation among people in the Twitter thread about whether he actually owns the house or a trust in his name owns the house, or it's some sort of company that leases to, you know, high end clients. I, I don't know, but whatever it is, you can go buy this house that uh, Steve and uh, L'Oreal, his wife, uh, live in. No, thanks. I don't, I don't want to do that. But uh, I think getting $7.5 million minus the taxes, broker fee, blah, blah, is one way to get over losing to Texas Tech. Well, You could pay me $4 million, and I would real quick forget about the fact that we're 2-2. Two and two. Well, I was we just going to say, Texas like, will we'll, we'll changing houses – kind of like end the fact that they keep blowing leads. I mean, they've done nothing but blow, blow leads ever since he's been there. That's all they do is blow leads. Yeah. They did it again. So maybe, maybe he's just sort of changing houses to get the, get the juju. Right. You know what I mean? Like just bad juju in that house. Just light some sage, light some sage and walk it through the whole UT athletic department. Walk it through all of Texas. In fact, if you have the time, and just sage that whole state and that whole program. That would be my my thought. I don't think you need to change houses to, to fix your luck. Sage it up. Uh, meditate. Uh, exor- bring in an exorcist, if those are real things. Um, that's what I would do. But this is becoming a trend and a theme, like you said, about Texas. And the line that says it all is from Joey McGuire, captured by Texas Tech. And by the way, these universities are getting more and more gutsy 
and they've done it for a couple of years now about what they share online about oh, other yes. teams they play. Oh, yes. And Joey McGuire said, I told y'all they were going to break. <laughs> and they did. And I mean, if you're a University of Texas, this proud, proud football program with a proud fan base, enormous expectations, just a legendary logo and a brand. And you've got everything you need to dominate that state and, and really be one of the top figures in college football. And the dude, the high school, I mean, no, I, I love Joey McGuire, no disrespect. But if you're looking at Joey McGuire as the high school coach in Lubbock, just said that you're soft and that we would bully you and we did, that's a look in the mirror moment. Like the most recent look in the mirror moment for Texas out of like the 50 in the last 10 years. Yeah, they, they've got to stop this. They've got to stop blowing games that they should win. And just point blank, like, and I don't even want to go into the Arch Manning stuff like, oh, is this going to affect his recruitment? I don't even care about that at this point. I, I doubt it will. Um, but you cannot be taken seriously. I think they've had five double-digit leads in like late in the third quarter that they've blown in the last dozen games. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and there's really no – like I was thinking about like what the comparison is, like where's the most recent comparison of a power five team or program that like had this run of games and then won a big one and broke through. Like it's like one, you do well, it once and you learn how to do it. I'm not sure if there is one. I mean, there was the whole Clemsoning thing back in the day. You remember people yeah. Clemson couldn't close the deal. They kept, you know, they had the game. I remember the game against Florida state out on the road. Uh, this might've been Taj Boyd's, senior year or was it or was it the following year when they went down to Florida State and and they had like all these opportunities uh to to go win that game and then they fumbled a couple times I, I guess it would have been 20 I guess it would have been 2014 the year after Florida State won the national championship and you know and then they finally sort of stopped doing that and I mean I don't know if that's quite the same but it's similar it's in the same ballpark. Like, it's definitely... But Clemson was already good. That's the thing. Right. Clemson was good. They just couldn't win the big one, right? Right. And then they finally right. got over that hump. This is like, let's just get, let's just get mediocre. Right. I yeah, it's it's a it's the best comparison I think, and I had I hadn't thought about it because, like you said, Clemson was looking to take the next step. Texas just trying to get the mediocre, just yeah. trying to get to a bowl game. Um. Being two and two at this point with two losses by a field goal, they're still going to get the six wins, but it's it's highly unlikely uh, that this is a team that plays for a Big 12 championship or takes the next step necessary to to breathe a lot of life into Sark's tenure. And that's a concern, uh, like with, in all seriousness, about him selling his house. If they're six and six this year, they're seven and five even. Uh, he's he's under he's a lot on of notice. pressure. Yeah, he's, he's on, on notice going into next year, and that's that's an issue. Obviously, they, they can't go and do another coaching search again in the next two years. It's really bad. Well, the fact that Texas couldn't even sniff the number one spot in my misery index this week tells you what kind of week it was in college football. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of bad outcomes, a lot of bad games. Uh, also, a coach fired this week. I think this is the third week in a row. Jeff Collins is out at Georgia Tech. Brent Key is going to be the interim coach for the rest of the season. The numbers for Jeff Collins were just terrible. You know, and I'll put my hand up and say from the very beginning, I thought he was going to work there. I thought it was the right fit. I liked what he wanted to do. 
I really thought the recruiting was going to be on the uptick. I knew there were going to be some bumps in the road because you're transitioning from triple option, but like they just, that was just a really bad tenure, just shockingly bad for a guy who did pretty good work at temple uh, as the head coach and was a very good defensive coordinator, had the energy. So now Georgia tech, they not only fire him, they fire the athletic director as well, Todd Stansberry. So they're blowing that thing up and starting over. I don't even know where to begin because it just, it just from the from day one it never was right at Georgia Tech. Like I remember the first game on the field, they got made fun of because guys were out like lifting weights and doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Remember that yeah. on the sideline? Uh-huh. It's crazy. What, what was it? They might have been playing Clemson his first game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and they're out there with like these these weight bars and and like the players are out there lifting weights pregame. It was, it was just super weird, right? Um, but I don't think that's why it didn't work. It just, you know, they had four punts blocked this year. Four punts blocked in four games. Wow. That doesn't, it's not even something that happens in college football. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Collins. Yeah, on paper it was a, it was a it made sense, and also his idea of hey we're going to recruit and we're going to rebuild the roster. I mean it's simplistic, but okay, do what you got to do. The issue is that he didn't even recruit well, and I think very early in the tenure, if you look back on it, like there was no plan B and there was no like, okay, let's deviate from the plan and, and do something different. You know? I, so I think Jeff Collins will be a head coach again, strangely. I kind of feel like even that if I was a group of five job in that region, if I was a Sunbelt job, I'd really take a look at him because he's got energy. He's a good defensive coach. You know, I just think Georgia Tech's a unique animal and he wasn't equipped to handle that job, but it does tell us a lot. I think even though we don't know who's going to be technically doing the hiring, uh, what Georgia Tech should do next. And I think what they should do next, to me, is uh, either... No, there's really only one way. I know we'll talk about Dion. The way that I would, would would hire a tech is to find a guy who has a scheme and a system. And that system, regardless of whether you have a top 10 class or just a top 35 or top 30 class, is designed to get you to seven wins a season. And obviously that's what Paul Johnson did. And I think uh, hiring Jeff Monken would allow you to do the same thing. So I could see why he's on the list. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Philosophically, when they got rid of Paul Johnson, the whole idea behind it was the triple option and the fact that you can't really recruit blue chip players generally to that system. It, it puts a ceiling on how much success you can have. You, know, you can be good. Your floor is going to be higher, but your ceiling is lower. The idea was, all right, we'll get a guy in here who can recruit better players. It will raise the ceiling. And I think philosophically for the institution, they sort of have to figure out, all right, well, was this the right idea but the wrong guy? Or do we need to go back to a system where maybe – the ceiling is lower, but the floor is higher. And I don't know that there's a right answer to that. But what I do know, and what I don't think maybe a lot of people realize, and I can speak to this because I live in Atlanta and I'm close enough to that program to understand it. Yeah, you're in the middle of Atlanta. That's a big, big plus in terms of recruiting. But it's a hard job. Georgia Tech is a different kind of school. It's a unique school. Academically, 
you can get guys in to Georgia Tech. The problem is what happens when they get there. You know, everybody every, – basically, you know, and, and again, I've talked to a lot of people and coaches over there. There's no Bachelor of, of Arts degree at Georgia Tech. You have to get a Bachelor of Science. You know, it's an engineering school. Everybody's mm-hmm. got to take calculus. You have to pass math. You know, you have to pass heavy-duty math. The class day is long and difficult. You know, practices, you're, you're either going to be practicing with the, play, with the players at like, you know, five in the morning or five in the evening. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and sometimes five in the evening or four, four in the afternoon, you know, they've been in class. It's a long day. It's hard to keep their attention. They're not, you know, it's not as much energy. Mm-hmm. So I say all that to, to, to say like, I don't think somebody like Deion Sanders would work at Georgia Tech. Now, obviously, Dion, you know, carries with him a lot of um, very good attributes, as we've seen on the college level. We've seen that he is somebody who's, you know, not only charismatic and has a big name and resonates with parents and recruits, but somebody who is winning games as a head coach at, at Jackson State. So all that stuff is good. But I think, like, when Dion gets that job at the next level – He's going to want to go to a place where he can recruit anybody he wants to recruit and do whatever he wants to do in terms of the spending, the branding, a school that's going to, you know, be all in with his, you know, bar stool and everything, you know, all the marketing stuff that he does. Mm-hmm. I can just tell you, like, Georgia Tech, people who coach it and work at Georgia Tech, they get told no an awful lot about stuff they want to do, you know, because they're limited by budget, they're limited by academics. And, um, yeah, like, uh, I just don't see Dion working. I don't see, I don't see them being interested in Dion, and I don't see Dion once he does his homework being interested in Georgia Tech. Yeah, the the last part of what you said is the key. Once he researches what the situation is there on paper, we'll just say about Dion real quick. Not that it needs to be said. Like he is not a gimmick coach. No, like there's yeah. no like he is a legitimate candidate, and I believe deservedly so for a number of really good openings from Auburn to Georgia Tech to whatever might open up in the next couple of months. The, the yeah. serious candidate, not a joke. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think when he looks at Georgia Tech, like what you said, I, I, I assume that there would be initial interest. It's a good job in a great city, uh, in a very winnable division, uh, very low expectations. But like you said, it, it's not going to lead Dion to the top of college football. So it would be like a stepping stone job for him. And I'm not sure if that makes a lot of sense. Like, why not? maximize Jackson State the most that you can, as he has already, and get a, a top-tier job, you know, a top-15 job in the country. That that's doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, but Georgia Tech would be wise to ask him. I also think Georgia Tech, for the reasons that you mentioned, can't get a neophyte head coach. I really think they need to get a guy who's been a head coach before and understands that's, that game, understands that give and take of what you can get how you can maximize your resources and 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 so on down the line. So that's why I, I, Dion's a great candidate. I just don't think it's the perfect marriage right now for those two guys. But the appeal is is easy for me to lay out for Dion. Go to Georgia Tech. Uh, I think you can get that team into working order somewhat quickly. At least he could have a, a an impact immediately. Uh, do three or four years, get them to the top half of that division, and then get a better job. But even then, that doesn't make sense to me. That's not his trajectory. I think Dion makes way more sense at 
Arizona State or Auburn, you know, which Auburn's not open, but it's going to be open. Right. And I, I don't, I disagree with you. Um, they would both be good hires for those schools. I think Auburn's a, is not for Dion. Really? Uh, yeah, because Auburn, no disrespect, we both know what Auburn's about. They've got a national championship in our adult lifetime. That is, in the same sense of Georgia Tech, that's a stepping stone job from Dion's perspective. That's the second best job in the state. No disrespect. It's the second best job in the state. And he understands Nick Saban very well. I don't think that he wants to go to Auburn and play little brother to Nick Saban for four or five years. I I just don't I don't think it'd be a good career move. Like I said, like isn't Dion aiming to reach the top, the very top? Auburn gives you a chance to win a national championship, but it is is it the very top job that he envisions in his career? I don't, yeah, but, I don't but quite know. The thing is you could go there and be, you know, kind of the iconoclast, because that's part of their brand as well. You know, I could see him looking at it and saying, yeah, let's go take it to all these guys. And and I'm not in Atlanta, but I'm an hour and a half away. I can go recruit all those guys from Atlanta, get them down to Auburn. I could see it. I, I don't know. It's an interesting I philosophical discussion, though. It's a great hire for Auburn, and it would be a good hire for Dion. I'm just trying to put myself – this is probably stupid um, because I can't understand him any more than you know anyone else could. But I'm, I'm just trying to see from his perspective – where he wants to go. Like, where does he want to be in five years? It's not at Jackson State, obviously. It's at Florida State, or it's at Texas, or it's somewhere big. Does Auburn help you help you achieve that goal? Honestly, it might. Like, it's hard not to win six games at Auburn. And if you're Dion, and if you're, like, getting to three or four straight bowl games at Auburn and maybe a top 25 finish or two, that probably gets you to the next step. It just, you're not the biggest show in your own state. Is that for Dion? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's that I hadn't considered that part of it, but uh, as far as Georgia Tech, you know, you mentioned Munkin. I think that's a very sensible name. I think Jamie Chadwell, a guy who runs a similar option type of right. system, option adjacent, I would say, right. um, would make a lot of sense. Uh, Bill O'Brien, I think, would make some sense. That's a Georgia Tech type of hire, so they're going to have options, I think. But I, I just. The Dion thing just doesn't seem right to me. I would not hire a Georgia assistant. That to me is a bridge too far. Well, uh, they, they they've been talking about I, the name Del McGee's been thrown out there. Sure. Um, you know, and I do think there's now much more openness to people like running backs coaches. You know, mm-hmm. as head coaches, you don't have to be a coordinator. I think we've kind of gotten over that, right? Because we've seen plenty of guys uh, go out and, and show that they can do the, the head coaching job. I, I think what's interesting now in coaching, and I wrote a little bit about this last week, and I certainly think there's more to discuss, more data to look at, but in this NIL era, how important is recruiting in the sense of it used to be that that was the way you, you got – the, some of these jobs. You were just a hell of a recruiter. You you were a player getter. That puts you at the top of lists, right? But I'm sort of wondering now if maybe the, the best way to, to run a program is to just hire the best ball coach and then just say, all right, here's the guys we're interested in. You know, boosters, go go do your thing at NIL. You know, is that is, – is the, is the value – of recruiting or of being a recruiter lower than it might've been five years ago. 
I don't know that I, I've seen enough evidence on that, but I do think there's something to that. Yeah, we don't have enough of like data points from the portal era to know for sure. And obviously the portal is one of the primary things that has changed recruiting like dramatically. But the point stands like if you're going to Oklahoma or Oklahoma State or wherever, yeah, sure. There's a aspect of it that is, hey, what a great brand. I grew up watching them on TV. They're on blah, blah, blah. They sent five guys to the NFL. I mean, clearly that's like a big aspect of it. But the program sells itself more than ever nowadays because of NIL. So yeah. you wrote about Lance Leipold. Uh, there are obvious questions about a guy who's 58, has been a Power 5 head coach for two years, is even after being 4-0, no, he's 6-10 and 10 as a Power 5 head coach. Obvious questions about his ability to run an even bigger Power 5 school. But you take out one of those questions about a guy who's had great success on you know different levels as he rises up. You no longer have a question about recruiting if you are Nebraska and you're like, well, we've got these eight farm dudes who have pulled together 20 million bucks and this is going to be our recruiting budget. So, yeah, it does take that out of the equation a bit, which opens some doors for a guy like Lightpole or Chris Kleiman or um, who else did you reference in the piece? Who are some other guys who are, who are climbing the ladder? Well, Kalen DeBoer was another one who, yeah. you know, basically was an NAIA head coach won three NAIA national championships, and he had to make the jump to offensive coordinator at, like, Southern Illinois or Western Illinois or something like that. And then he sort of works his way up from there. But, like, there's a lot of dudes who can coach ball at the lower levels, you know. But they always always get – I don't want to say discriminated against because that's not the right word. But they they definitely get overlooked or or their record isn't taken seriously – because they have not recruited generally at the at the highest level. And so that's what people have concerns about. And I'm not saying that's unfair. I'm just saying is that is important now as it used to be when when let's face it, a lot of these deals, you can be as good of a recruiter as you want to be. A lot of these deals are coming down to money. Yeah. So. And I think uh, the difference between a I'll also say division three or really more like FCS or Division Two, Division Three coach from an FBS coach uh, isn't talent. It's what ambition and opportunity. It's not yeah. like the guys Division Three like are like, okay, we're going to call this play halfback dive twenty three. I saw it on Madden ninety seven. Here's my playbook. Like they're running some complicated stuff down there too. So um, opportunity, the opportunity to rise up the coaching ranks is better now than ever because there's if only because there's just more coaching turnover. Yeah. Like more schools are churning through people and looking for other 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 guys. So Lightpole's a great example. I mean, he's less than a decade removed from being at Wisconsin Whitewater, and now he's potentially going to be the next head coach at a better Power Five school. So I always value experience. Guys like Jerry Kill, who churned through the Pittsburgh states of the world to get to Minnesota, um, you know, you learn how to be a head coach down there. So Lance Lightpole's a great example. That was a good essay, or a good essay, good opinion piece. I like that one. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So because we are the College Football Fix podcast from USA Today Sports, we do go over the AFCA coaches poll every week on this podcast. The way I want to do it this week, a little bit different. Let's talk about some of these teams and just in the sense of do we know who they are at this point in the season? Four games in, do we know who they are? Georgia, number one, I think we know who they are. They played a game against Kent State where I thought they just kind of were bored. 
they're mm-hmm. ready to they're ready to get some real competition. Um, they did, you know, they they kind of let Kent State hang around a little bit. I think we know who Georgia is, right? We know that Georgia is very good. They gave up twenty two points and we're like up in arms about it. They're yeah. very good. I think we know who Alabama is, but on a scale of one to ten, I'd give it maybe about a seven. Now I, I'm not ten out of ten yet. No, I'm not like sold on them being the Georgia-like juggernaut that we've seen, but I think we have an idea that they're going to be there in the end. I think it's yeah. safe to say they'll be there in the end. I think we know who Ohio State is. Michigan. This is the first really interesting one. Mm-hmm. Number four in the poll, four and zero. They played three games early that were just a total joke. First Big Ten game, they face Maryland, and it was a competitive game. You know, they they certainly had some moments in that game where it was tense. I never thought they were going to lose, but you know, they they. I think it was one of those games where it might say that Maryland's pretty good, and Michigan's really good. But you know, when you when you only beat Maryland by seven at home, and the final was thirty four twenty seven, do we really know who you are? What do we think? Do we know who Michigan is? No, but we're hopeful that they're as good as they looked early in September. Like you said, I think Maryland's like maybe borderline top 25 when all is said and done. Clearly the fourth best team in a, in a pretty good Big Ten East. Uh, game control. I think we'll hear game control talked about in reference to this game. You know, They had game control. September. Yeah, it was never in doubt, but you wanted to see more. But the truth is... Like, they're not the 85 Bears. They destroyed yeah. Hawaii and, and UConn and Colorado State. I think beating Maryland by a touchdown, it's not them at their best, but it's acceptable. I think they have earned number four, but we're not sure what they're about. We're not sure how good they really are. Quick quick sidetrack since you mentioned Colorado State, and I don't want to hear their name mentioned on this podcast ever again. <laughs> they lost to Sacramento State 41-10. to They are the worst. They're the worst FBS team we've seen in quite some time, don't you think? They're really bad. They're really bad. Uh, Jay Norvell is, is is a good coach who did a nice job at Nevada. We He's think, got a lot yeah. of work to do. But uh, the stench of Adazio is strong. Mm. Yeah, the, the B.O. of Steve Adazio has infected the Colorado State football program. It's that, and just, by the way, one quick thing on Sacramento State. Uh, for ADs, if you're listening, if you're looking for a head coach – you might want to check out Troy Taylor, Sacramento State. Heard a lot of good things. Heard a lot of good yeah. things. Great uh, offensive mind, if I if I yeah. re- remembering. He was at Eastern Washington. Yes, I believe Is that's that possible. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we. Okay. Yeah. Don't schedule them. Just to be clear, maybe look at their coach. Don't schedule them. All right. Number five is Clemson. They beat Wake Forest in overtime. I don't think we know who Clemson is right now. No. Oh, no. No, no. We think that this offense is a lot better than maybe someone at USA Today wrote last Wednesday or Thursday. They just put up 500 yards on Wake. But to be fair, uh, Liberty put up a lot of yards yeah. and points on Wake. So I'm not. I'm still not sure what to make of the offense, except it's probably safe to say that DJ Uyunglele has improved. I think the, it's the only safe thing. To say. The only thing I would say about that, and I'm not trying to take anything away from their performance or from DJ's performance. Just in watching that game, I I felt like there were a lot of just jump balls in that game that Clemson found a way to come down with. You know hmm. that, and again, that's not. I mean, there's gonna that's gonna happen in a football game, and and that's gonna be part of the offense at times. Like you you find a matchup and you 
throw it up there and, and you hope your guy comes down with it. But I thought there were a lot of like jump balls in that game that, that maybe against a better defense, not, not going to happen. And on the flip side, Clemson's defense absolutely got shredded in that game. I mean, their, yeah. their secondary looked rough. That was the first time you've really seen sort of the, the, the loss of Brent Venables, maybe rear its head a little bit. Look, I'm happy for you, Clemson. You're you're 4-0. You're number five. You're the favorite in the ACC. Maybe you'll get into the playoff again. I do not think this team is of the caliber that we saw in, you know, 2015 through 2018. They're definitely not up to the snuff of the top three. Interesting about the jump ball thing. Like, that's kind of been Clemson's offense. Like, our offense is our guys win one-on-one battles downfield. Like, that's Clemson's passing game. And the reason that I think they've stunk so much is a little bit because of DJ, but also because the personnel at receiver is so below the standard. Yeah. So it was good to see them win those battles. But defensively, like, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. They're going to play Devin Leary on Saturday. He's not as good as Sam Hartman. He's damn good, though. Uh, And that's just a real concern. It's weird. Like, we've gone in the span of four days from worried about Clemson's offense to the defense. But I think those fears right now are are well-grounded. So Clemson... Do we know what they're about? I'm going to say no. And no, no. All right, the next team in the poll, another interesting one, USC, 4-0. They go in to Oregon State, and they were behind for a lot of the second half of that game. They end up gutting out kind of a tough, ugly 17-14 win, which I like to see. Their offense really did not work Saturday, but I think – it's a lot of progress in my mind that you go on the road, things don't go your way really through much of that game. And yet at the end, Caleb Williams is able to put together a drive and you just get out of Dodge with a, with a win. To me, that's not something we've seen from USC in a long time. Yeah. Agreed. I would have liked to have seen it to be precise. Yeah. Well, yeah, see. Yeah. No, yeah. To be, I don't want to do false advertising here. I did not see it because it was on the Pac-12 right. network. I was actually, uh, I went on to uh, Twitter to get a play-by-play. I think Brett McMurphy was doing a play-by-play, legitimately yes. doing a play-by-play. And I was public like, thank ser- you. Public service. Thank you, 2002 ESPN Game Tracker. Um, so uh, I agree with you. It's great to see SC hit the ground running on offense against some overmatched teams. Oregon State's really good. I think they're an eight-win team. They're on the come. And I think winning that style of game is a positive sign. I don't like. I should have gone through and looked at scores and looked at games. I don't. I don't know if it's true that SC didn't win games like this under Clay Helton, but it's definitely true that they, they lost more games than this, like this, than they won. So it's a good sign. I agree. All right, Oklahoma State's number seven. They didn't play last week. Kentucky's number eight. Let's talk about Tennessee at number nine, cracking the top ten up from number twelve. They beat Florida. It was uh, a little more complicated at the end than maybe it should have been as Florida recovered an onside kick and, you know, could have potentially done something in the last few seconds, but it, it, it they were up against it and, and Tennessee was able to get, get a turnover at the end. Do we know what Tennessee is about? We know what they are about from a philosophical perspective. <clears throat> they are going to... Go, 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 go on offense. They're going to put the ball in hand in Hooker's hands, and uh, and they're going to be a lot of fun to watch. 
I know that's that's really dumbed down, but that's basically what their identity is. And a lot of teams don't even have that identity. So credit to Josh Heupel to get that thing turned around. Um, in terms of like whether we think they're number nine team in the country, I really don't. I think they're very good. They're like a top 25 team. I just, they're, they're not ready yet to be there, yeah. you know, but it's a great story. And it's awesome to see UT kind of back on the map, but it's going to be, I think it's going to come back to earth a bit in the next four or five games. Yeah, look, I think we have to give Josh Heupel a ton of credit for, in a very short amount of time, taking a dumpster fire situation and turning it into a winning situation. I still have some long-term questions just because I felt like as Heupel's tenure at UCF went on, I thought there were some cracks in the culture, Mm -hmm. you know, and the way they played. So we'll see, you know, but... Uh, for right now, they're riding high. We're going to find out what they're about. They, they've they got some games coming up where we will definitely find out. NC State, number 10, we're going to find out this week. They play Clemson. Number 11, Ole Miss. I think we don't have to discuss them because I, I have no clue what they're about. No clue. They, and they are not deserving to be number 11 in the country just yeah. based off the teams they played. I mean, come on, folks. Yeah. Uh, 12, Penn State. We discussed them enough last week. They're doing well, 4-0. Mm-hmm. Utah, number 13. Baylor, number 14. I think they've sort of figured out some of their issues. Uh, I, I think for Baylor, that was just a little bit of an anomaly performance at BYU offensively. I think they they sorted out a lot of stuff. That was impressive uh, for them to, to go out to Ames and, and win pretty authoritatively. Oregon, number 15. They, they have to go to Washington State. They look dead in the water. They were kind of moving the ball up and down the field, but they couldn't score. They couldn't put points on the board. Uh, and then they just flipped the switch at the end. And that, what, it was it three touchdowns in the last, what, five minutes of the game or something like that? Yeah, they, they, they burst late, and that's a game they had to have. Um, yeah. It doesn't make me think that they've, like, turned the corner from Georgia, but they, they had to have it. Yeah, so they're still in the mix in the Pac-12. Washington State's going to kick themselves a lot. I mean, yeah, the opportunity they to really they, – they could have built on that Wisconsin game big time going into October. So tough loss, did, good win. I didn't feel like Washington State really blew it. Like I didn't think they did anything egregious to blow mm-hmm. it, but they were in a winning position and, and they just couldn't finish. Yeah, so agreed. Uh, number 16 is Oklahoma, down from number six. They lose at home to Kansas State again, third time in the last four years that Oklahoma's lost to Kansas State. What are they about? And I – I mean, you, I thought a lot of positive things about Oklahoma coming off their first three games, but that looked pretty rough on Saturday. I mean, you know, again, you can't judge a team off one game. Kansas State was coming off a loss to Tulane. And it, it's weird. Like, does, does Kansas State just kind of have their number? Is it just a matchup thing? Or is Oklahoma just not that good? They're not top ten good. It might be more the latter. Kansas yeah. State's pretty simple. Uh, two guys touch the ball. Uh, you would think, and this is not to like disparage Brent Venables or to be snarky, you would just think uh, a defensive mastermind like that, if only two guys are going to touch the ball, if you can devote to taking away one of those guys, you're going to win the football game. Unfortunately, they couldn't stop either either one. Uh, nice story, Adrian Martinez. I don't know yeah. if it's a, I don't know if it's a one-off. Like, not just for Martinez, but for OU and for K-State. But I've always thought all offseason, K-State's a top 25 team. Uh, so I'm not too surprised. I think what it says about OU, I don't even like their offense. I don't think their offense looks good. 
let alone yeah. their defense, which got gouged. So I'm not loving the relationship and the pairing of, of Gabriel and the scheme. I would just love to see him like chuck it downfield and I just don't know how well this thing is fitting. It, like I hate it, the CMB eight and four. Yeah, it's it doesn't clunky. fit well. So All right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think yeah. about OU? What what is their how does this change their ceiling? The, the thing game. is, like, from what we've seen in the Big Twelve so far, Oklahoma State may well be the best team. Don't know that yet, but it seems like there's a lot of parity mm-hmm. in that league, and it's just gonna be teams beating up on each other, and I don't really think there's gonna be a playoff contender that emerges from there because there's not one or two breaking away from the pack. I think it's maybe five or six that could all sort of beat each other on any given day. And when that's that the reality of your league, then you're going to have teams lose a couple. Yeah. And I think Oklahoma is just in that mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be tough to navigate that at, at 11 and one or, or certainly 12 and one. So that's something to watch that in the pack 12, they could chew each other up a bit. All right. Number 17, a and we do not know what they're about, but what I do know is they're not the 17th best team in the country. Uh, that's way too high, but they are three and one. It was a good win over Arkansas. They were a little bit fortunate in many ways to win that game, including the fact that Arkansas's game-winning field goal at the end bonked off the top of the upright, uh, which, I mean, that's a pretty gut-wrenching way to, to lose. But um, I think, you know, Arkansas blew, Arkansas blew that game. Yeah, Arkansas had – had that well in their control, and then it just went haywire. Um, but when you talk about teams that needed it, Texas A&M needed it. Yeah, like now they only look back at App State and think, oh, man, we should have had that one instead of being 2-2 two and two and having your season over. So, yeah, it's a season-salvaging win. Arkansas should have won. They're up by two scores. Uh, they fumbled the ball. I believe it was 14 nothing at that point. Yeah. 14-0 when Jefferson fumbled. It would have been 21 nothing. 21 nothing. And not to mention the kick. I, I think about Cam Little, who's an outstanding young kicker, one of the best young kickers in the country. Um, I hope this doesn't, you know, define his college experience. That's just tough. I mean, in that neutral site, you're in Jerry world, and, like, your kick goes off the upright. It's, your teammates are crying. You've got, like, 23-year-old, 24-year-old, 60-year seniors with full beards and three kids crying on the sidelines because you missed a kick. That's rough. That's really, really rough. So bad loss for Arkansas. It, it should have been a win. It takes so much juice out of Saturday against Alabama because, you know, they're no yeah. longer unbeaten. But, yeah, they're still headed for a nice season, but it's, it's a disappointing loss. All right, number 18, Washington. Number 19, Arkansas. Number 20, BYU. 21, Wake Forest. The next team I want to talk about, 22, is Florida State. Do we know what Florida State is about at this point in the year? They are 4-0. And they demolished Boston College. They looked very good in that game. What do we think? Do we know anything about Florida State yet? Yeah, so I was thinking about this. And then you you think about the team, how they've improved, the direction of the program under Norvell. And then you think, or at least I thought, like if LSU doesn't just screw it up completely in the opener, we're not even talking about Florida State. So you think like they're 3-1, and one, we're not chatting about Florida State. But they got lucky or whatever in the opener against LSU and all of a sudden they're they're the talk of the town so I know there's a thin line but let me just push back on you a little bit there the right team won that game Florida State played played better than LSU they that was a game if Florida State had lost it would have been a devastating giveaway the right team won that game they were better that day 
Yeah, that's they a good did point. get lucky, but but like that's that's the difference. I think my basic point is I don't in the in the conversation of what we know about these teams. Florida yeah. State's one of the biggest enigmas to me because of that opener. Because it was a game that I don't even really remember too well, except for it being wild and crazy. Like you just kind of blew my mind. I now remember that Florida State was the aggressor in that game, and not vice versa. Um, but beating Boston College, who was a dumpster fire and just run off the rails, it doesn't do it for me. They play Wake on Saturday, and we'll know a little bit more. I, I would be a seller right now on Florida State just based off the lack of faith I have that this is for real. They're better, but are they top twenty-five better? I don't. I don't know that for sure. Well, I, I'm impressed, and obviously the fact that Jordan Travis was not injured in a significant long-term way is huge. Uh, for their prospects going forward, that could be the game that trips up Clemson. You know, now now that we know we've seen them play, I mean, I'm happy for Norvell because I think he's a good coach. He got off to about as rough a start as you could, but at the same time, like pandemic and you know, it was it was not a great time to take that job. It seems like things have 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 kind of stabilized there, so that that's good. We need Florida State to be in the mix in big games. Hey, uh, really quick about Mike Norvell. I'm, I'm a AD at one of these job openings or projected job openings, and I'm not Georgia Tech. I would ask, and my selling point would be like, you got a really good gig, no disrespect, but uh, every time Dion wins a game, we're talking about him replacing you. You want to serve out your tenure with like him going to Auburn or Georgia Tech and doing well, and you've got to live with that? Let's come over and have a fresh start. It's not going to sell him on it. I'm just saying. Yeah, I make I make the phone call and I ask the question. That's all. well. I think if you're Auburn, you can make that phone call. You know, I don't know if I don't know like Nebraska, Arizona State, Arizona State would be a tough sell. Though he knows the area, he probably he does, knows the yeah, bar scene and all that. It's not going to happen. I'm just saying, it's it's worth an ask. He's done a nice job. All right, nice twenty. Let's move on. Twenty three Minnesota four and zero. You know, it's interesting. They they crushed Michigan State, and we can. I'm going to talk about Michigan State in a second, but. Um, somebody who was at that game actually texted me Sunday. Uh, they texted me a lot about Michigan State. But uh, they basically said P.J. Fleck has done an absolutely outstanding job building this team. Yeah. And, you know, this may just be one of those years. They, they're, they've kind of had like a, a little bit of a, a theme in Minnesota where, you know, it's either really good or really mediocre. Not, there hadn't been a lot of in-between. You know, and maybe this is just one of those really good years. Um, Tanner Morgan's kind of back to back to playing the way he did. Like, I don't. I mean, he's got to be what thirty three at this point. However <laughs> yeah, old he is, he's got some miles on him. Yeah, yeah, he's back to playing the way he did when he was in his early twenties. <laughs> well, look, this was not a year where Minnesota was supposed to be as good as they've looked. They had a totally rebuilt offensive line, and I think a lot of people, myself included, use that as an excuse to like put Minnesota back to third in the West or whatever, which makes us all feel a little bit more comfortable just because we have preconceptions, preconceptions about the Gophers. Uh, but he's done outstanding work. They're good. And, and at this point, they're the overwhelming favorite to win the West um, and and maybe even make a New Year's Six Bowl. So that's a pretty incredible achievement for PJ. Number 24 is Pittsburgh. Number 25 is Syracuse. Let's shout them out a little Ooh. bit. <laughs> I did not see this coming. I did not no. see Dino Babers not just saving his job, but just crushing it so far this year. Yeah. Uh, the reinvention of Syracuse football into like not 
what you thought they were a couple years ago when they won 10 games or whatever they did and, and pushed Notre Dame at, at Yankee Stadium. Well, uh, and, an, and another quarterback who I, it seems like I was watching him play during the Obama administration. <laughs> I mean, how long has Garrett Schrader been at this? You know, and I realized that that only feels like it was 15 years ago. That's only, well, seven years ago. It's possible. Uh, it's possible. Um, I don't, uh, what do we know about Syracuse? It's just a really nice story. And that's all that we should really say about Syracuse. Nice job to, to get back out of the, the dumps. But that's that's pretty much as far as it's going to go. By the way, Kansas did not make the cut in uh, either this poll or the AP poll, mm-hmm. despite beating Duke to go 4-0. Congratulations to Kansas. Um, maybe next week the voters will see fit to reward them for what they've done. I want to talk about a couple teams that um, are not doing so well. Please start with Michigan State. I must. Let's, I need to know. I need to know what you heard. Please tell us. Well, <laughs> I mean, more like what is, you were told. You were. You didn't hear anything. What? Who? What did this person who was at the game tell you that they saw from the Spartans? I mean, do you up. want? Do you want me to read you the text? I as long as they're clean. This is a family podcast. I think. I don't. Think it's not. Person. It's not clean. Um, absolutely effing horrendous. <laughs> Scheme is pure. Dog S. Dog Scat. Um, basically said they're playing some guys who should be walk-ons. No energy from from their from their defense. And and the problem here is defense is what Mel Tucker does. The secondary, he's a secondary coach by by trade, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's supposed to be his baby, and their secondary sucks. At one point in that game, it was like two hundred something yards to one yard. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it got it, Michigan State was able to put up some stats late in the game when it didn't matter. Um, and here's the thing: is like last year, Michigan State had a great year, right? Mel does a terrific job in the portal. You know, they get uh, Kenneth Walker, and you know, it's this whole great story. And it was awesome, right? I loved, I loved what they did. Um, you may, you maybe didn't for reasons <laughs> we don't have to discuss. I was just, I was just ahead of my time. That's but um, it was awesome what what they were able to do, uh, kind of out of nowhere, and beat yeah. Michigan and all that stuff. But then the school like goes crazy and gives him a contract that is just so far outside of the market for coaches of that level, basically like Michigan state single-handedly restarted and reset the entire coaching salary market based on yeah. Mel Tucker. It's and and so you saw, you know, once Mel Tucker got, you know, $9 million a year or eight, whatever it is, $8 million a year, then it was like, well, if he gets that, then I, what do I, what should I be getting? So that's why you're seeing some of these guys now, nine, $10 million a year. And I don't blame them because Mel Tucker has been a head coach for three years. This is his fourth year as a head coach, one at Colorado, and then the, gets the job uh, late at Michigan State. It's the COVID year, so that one doesn't really count. Mm-hmm. And then last year when they go 11-2. and two. And when you decide off one good year with a guy who's got very little track record as a head coach that – okay, you're basically just going to be all in. And look, it's not my money. You know, they got this billionaire booster, Matt Ashiba, who is bankrolling a lot of this, whatever. It's a drop in the bucket to him. 
but it's just such bad business to give a guy a head coach who has no lengthy track record, that kind of contract. And I understand, you know, they were worried about LSU. They were worried about this, worried about that. But to just lock yourself in, I I just, some of these schools, I, I feel like just get so freaked out about a coach leaving who, you know, at the end of the day is fairly replaceable. I mean, other than Nick Saban and a couple guys, everybody in this business is replaceable. If Mel Tucker got $9 million to go to LSU, they could go find another guy who's of similar level. Now, they may get it wrong, but that's the job, is to go identify the the, the best coach. And, you know, I'm not saying Mel Tucker's bad or that Michigan State's going to the bottom forever or that he should be fired. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, like, right now you can't look at that team and say, man, we made a great investment in this guy. You just can't. Yeah, they went uh... – you know how you should never go grocery shopping when you're hungry? Michigan State went shopping when yeah, they were hungry. Yeah. They are like, we need all these Doritos. So we need Money is no object. Um, it didn't just reset the market for the top earners. It, it also like moved up the mid-tier of, of earners in the Power yeah. Five to the point where like 6 million, even 7 million might be the new like baseline for a, a a solid power five coach, like not like Nick Saban, but like name a solid middle of the road power five coach, like 7 million might be the new starting point on those salaries because of what, of, of how the, how that market was changed. Um, I don't think Michigan State's going to necessarily regret it, especially like in a year or two when everything starts to like, maybe that contract doesn't look so ridiculous but they look a little bit ridiculous right now. That I, I hate to think that they just caught lightning in a bottle last season, but it's looking, I mean, through a month, that clearly last year might have been an aberration. Um, and this year is clearly not going to go that well for the Spartans. This is just get to six and six or seven and five, I think, that type of year. And that might be a, that might be a stretch because they haven't even played the best of the East yet. And just for clarity's sake, it's a 10-year, $95 million contract. It's so it's nine and a half million a year. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And I don't think they bid against themselves because I think that LSU would have been wise to hire Mel Tucker if they had the opportunity. I mean, they, they got a, a legendary coach anyway, but um, it's a big-time commitment for a guy that had only been a Power 5 coach for a short amount of time. But we talked about that at Nelson, and we knew that at the time. And then the last team I want to discuss is Miami. Oof. I don't want to be the guy who's like just every week sitting here piling on Mario Cristobal. Again, like Mario, good dude. But what I have said about Mario for many years now, I I think more people are sort of figuring out. He is an excellent coach Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. On Saturday, there are problems. Now, in fairness to me and and, every, and everybody else, I don't think losing 45-31 at home to MTSU is just a game management problem or a, you know Saturday problem. That was a that was a problem that would have had seeds sown much earlier than than Saturday, right? When yeah, you get beat at home, crushed at home by Middle Tennessee State, something is wrong. But right now, like I don't know what you do because um, they're two and two. There were no fans at that game. Like no, there was hardly anybody there. 
it was ugly. Their defense gave up big play after big play. They benched Tyler Van Dyke. It's it's a little bit of a mess. Yeah, they lost that game on Monday, um, like when they started prepping for it, no doubt about it. Um, again, another coach takes an underdog team into a uh, into the environment into a road environment. Rick Stockskill, former Florida State quarterback. And then after the game says, uh, we knew that we could push them around, and we did. Yeah. They basically bullied Miami. Uh, say a lot about Cristobal, and I think a lot has been said about close games and some decisions that it's almost a cliche at this point, like Texas recruiting you know, quarterbacks as safeties to talk about it, but there's obviously truth in it. This was more troubling to me because it represents more of a physical loss than a mental loss. Um, so that's an issue. Having said that, he's four games into this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are they going to have this moment happen in November this year? Maybe, but the hope is that it doesn't happen next year and going forward. This is a major wake-up call to people who thought Miami was good, I, and I still don't know why anyone thought Miami was a top-15 team. The big issue is not that they lost the game. It's what's happening with Van Dyke because he seemed can't miss in August. You're yanking him after two picks against Middle Tennessee in September. Um, that, to me, worries me more even than the loss is well, what they do with Van Dyke. And it may be that Jake Garcia was was ultimately the guy anyway at Miami. I mean, he was a big time recruit. Yeah, and you know, he came in and, and played better than than Van Dyke did in that game. Uh, he's obviously got some talent, and maybe the staff there just believes in him more, and that mm-hmm. this was just sort of the the fuse that that had to be lit at some point. But um, yeah. Uh, it just it just doesn't look good. Now they got North Carolina um, next. It's 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 a week off for them this week, which I'm sure they they need to sort some stuff out. But uh, it's not a great start when you hire you hired Mario Cristobal for the recruiting part, the connection to the city, the toughness that which is supposedly you know he he likes to play line of scrimmage ball, um, but right now it just. If if that's your brand and you get out toughed by Middle Tennessee State, you, you do have to look in the mirror with a team that was preseason top twenty five. This was not a you know we we just went three and nine three straight years. Please right. p- please drag us out of the ditch. So yeah. not good. Um. All right. Did you see LeBron James tweeting during the Ohio State game? Did you see what he said? Yeah, let's let's share. Um, because we, this is like if you spend enough time thinking about LeBron and, and asking about it, you remember that he's very talented. He was a very, yeah. very, very talented football player. He's, he's a pretty good. He's a pretty good athlete. Just in general, yeah. in, in general, yeah. Uh, he did play college or high school football, and I probably had he done that instead of basketball, he he probably could have done something. Maybe not quite as accomplished in any other sport as he turned out to be in basketball. But, you know, LeBron is now coming to the end of his NBA career at some point in the next few years. Uh, certainly when you get into the late 30s, you, you start to throw around retirement. And he tweeted on Saturday, watching the Ohio State game, um, that uh, he, he was looking for people to see if he, had, he, could, he could play some college sport beside basketball because – he never went to college, right? So therefore, he never started his eligibility clock, which is a big thing. And you know, you have this history of 
people like Chris Wanky, you know, goes and plays baseball, pro baseball, but is still eligible at whatever he was, like 25 years old, to come back and play college football because he never started his clock. You've seen J.R. Smith. That's the example right there. Right. You've seen, yeah. I'm just, I'm sort of giving the history here. Yeah. You've seen J.R. Smith, who is is playing college golf at uh, in North Carolina A&T. Mm-hmm. So, theoretically, LeBron could do this, right? Theoretically. Sure. Absolutely. What sport? <laughs> what sport should LeBron try to play when he retires from the NBA? What college sport should he try to play? Uh, he needs to be a, a tight end or H-back or a wide receiver at Ohio State. <laughs> I mean, this is yeah, just but... go up and get it. What do you, what are you suggesting that he that well, he becomes a swimmer? I mean, the thing is, like, when you're 40 years old, can can you? You know, is football maybe going to be a little too college football going to be a little too physical or demanding? You know, forty oh. years old. There's oh, there's a lot of miles on there's a lot of miles on those legs. Oh my gosh, he's 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 six foot eight, and I truly believe that he's pushing three hundred pounds. Right? I mean, he's a enormous. Yeah, he's probably more like two, probably two seventy, two sixty five. Okay. He's on the on the upper. He's over two two hundred fifty. So math tells me that we're going to round that up. We're going to three. He's he's closer to three hundred than two. Oh, I mean, he's he's a he's a brick house of a human being, and he, and he is an enormous person. Yeah. I would just like to see it. There are stories, and I remember trying to speak to Jim Trestle about it one time after he was at Youngstown, um, and he didn't really go into it. But the story I've heard is that Ohio State seriously looked at him. As a football prospect, like when he might have been a sophomore, so I'm thinking maybe 2000, because his NBA debut was the 02 season. So maybe he was a freshman, sophomore, and he was still playing. But I think he stopped playing as a junior or maybe an after his freshman year. But obviously, a guy who's six foot eight and can jump out of the building is, is an asset as a football player. Um, so I would continue to try to play football. You want to talk the talk. You want to go sideline and, and, and stand up at those Saturday night games at the Horseshoe and, and, ex, and experience that lace them up, go over the middle against Jim Leonard's defense. Uh, you'll probably score a touchdown. But, uh, right. you know, go over the middle. Let's see it. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I'm, I'm looking over. the Ohio State offers a lot of sports. They offer a lot of sports. Um, you know, obviously baseball, I think, is out. Uh, basketball is out. Cross country, it's too much running. <laughs> Who wants? You're a cross country athlete. Examine yourself from a mental perspective. What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, they offer they offer fencing at Ohio State. I, I think you could I think you could practice fencing and probably get pretty good, but it would take a lot of practice. He could make the team. I'm pretty sure. They'd I covered fencing. I covered fencing at, at the Olympics in uh, 2016. I, I still don't really understand it. <laughs> yeah, uh, me neither. Don't know. But fencing's not for LeBron. No. Uh, golf. I've never seen him play golf or really seen his swing. Um, gymnastics, way too big. That wouldn't work. Ice hockey, I don't think LeBron knows how to skate, so that's that's a problem. Okay. What, what about lacrosse? He would be so dominant in lacrosse. With his reach and his build and his broad physique, he would be a dominant, dominant lacrosse player. I'd put him in the crease, and he'd score 150 goals a season. I could, hey. I could, I could see lacrosse working for him. Um, pistol and rifle. I mean, that's obvious. You know, if you just kind of want to like, you know, go to college and, you know, jerk around like Rodney Dangerfield and back to school. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> join the rifle team. 
Joy the uh, yeah, Joy the the rifle team, diving team. Hey, uh, do you think you could beat LeBron at tennis? Yes, yes. Wow, real quick. So you don't even know LeBron could play tennis in his spare time, but you are going to say that you well, could beat LeBron at tennis. I, I mean, I I believe I've seen his house. I believe he does have a tennis court at his house. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen photos, so it's possible that he's back there like all day hitting tennis balls. Um, you know, I saw a clip of uh, Luca playing tennis. The other day, oh, the Duka Doncic, 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 yeah. yeah. So, okay. um, Dirk Nowitzki, I guess, does this like charity tennis tournament thing in Dallas mm-hmm. every year, and they bring out a bunch of you know people to play. I think Andy Roddick might have been a part of it. Yeah, um, it was pretty cool. It looked looked like a lot of fun, and actually, um, so they there were some clips of Luca playing. Luca's got decent form, mm-hmm. but the racket head speed wasn't there. Racket head speed was not there. So. Um. I think I saw that clip. He's like, he's got all these people standing behind him. I thought it looked pretty good, but again, I'm, it, it, I, it, I it didn't tennis. look bad. He's a little too upright. I mean, the thing about tennis is like, you do have guys who are super tall, who excel in the sport. You've mm-hmm. got, you know, John Isner, Riley Opelker, like seven feet tall. You know, Daniel Medvedev was number one in the world. Goran Ivanisevic. Goran, you know. Yeah. You've, you've got, you've had tall guys. Uh, I think obviously LeBron would, would do well with the movement. I think, I think he could, like, if LeBron wanted to devote a year to learning tennis, mm-hmm. I think he could get pretty good. I'm not yeah. sure he could get college level good. That would surprise me. Um, but without knowing anything about him and never seeing him swing a racket, I feel pretty confident I could beat him. The, uh, the guy who's good at tennis in the in uh, in NBA is Steve Nash. He's very good at tennis. Thought he was a soccer dude, but I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm not surprised by it. Emily, so, Emily makes a really good point here in our chat. Uh, LeBron is a is a goalkeeper at soccer with his yeah. length and his uh, and his just reaction time and his athleticism. I mean, how are you getting a shot past LeBron? He basically well, occupies the entire net. He's like putting a fat guy in, in hockey net, which I still don't know why they they don't do that. Well, the other one I was going to propose there in the same vein is volleyball. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Uh, that would be pretty good. Yeah, because it's a jumping and slamming sport. This is yeah. uh, right in the wheelhouse. Um, but I don't yeah, think actually, they do men's indoor volleyball in, on the NCAA level. I think it's outdoor. It's, oh, outdoor only for men? Beach I am not sure, but, they, but Ohio State sponsors it. So, you know what? I think in looking at all these options, I would advise LeBron to, to do volleyball because I think it would be the easiest on, on a 40-year-old body. I think his sort of natural gifts would translate well to volleyball. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he would need to do the kind of technical training that you would have to do repetitively to be good at a sport like tennis or fencing or something like that. So I, I think I think volleyball is where his future is. Now, I'm probably yeah. going to get a, some angry emails from volleyball fans telling me it's way more technical <laughs> than I'm giving it credit right. for. Uh, I think uh, he would – the idea of him playing football is amazing and we'll never know. I would have loved to have seen it. But then I'm like – I'm just picturing like August 2nd. He's on his second day of two-a-days and Mickey Marotti's like screaming in his face. And he's like, I'm LeBron James, dude. Like yeah. I'm not doing this. So, yeah, football is probably a non-starter. But it's it's a great, great, great what if because he was a football prospect. He's not like yeah. – you know. He's not like no. a Chris Paul as a bowler. Like I do it as a side project. He was a football yeah. prospect. 
Yeah, he. I, I have no doubt he could have been awesome at football. I'm just factoring in, you know, close to 40 years old. That's what that's what I'm thinking about. If I were him, I would not play any more sports. Just retire uh, and spend your money. Spend all your money. Just go go it. to a Greek island and chill. Buy it, right? Yeah, you know, he could buy it too. All right, uh, let's uh, quickly move on to this weekend's games. Friday, you've got Tulane at Houston. Um, we didn't talk about Houston. To uh, to first of all, great just college football example of how crazy things can get. So Tulane goes up and beats Kansas State at Kansas State. They right. come home the next week, lose to Southern Miss while Kansas State goes on the road to beat Oklahoma. Figure that one out. They've got Houston. There are clear problems at Houston because uh, Dana Holgerson is going nuts mm-hmm. and is um, they're, they're, they won at Rice, but he's mad at his team. He said he, he would not take responsibility for how stupid they play, which is like an amazing thing for a coach to say. <laughs> right. Just in general. Uh, I would say, uh, I'd say Dana, you don't have to take responsibility, but I would also like you to not take responsibility of this weekly paycheck that we give you. Yeah. Um, that would be my response. This is a huge game for Houston. This season has yeah. teetered on instability from the get-go. And if they lose to Tulane, they are not just in the group of five. I think they are the biggest disappointment in all of college football. Considering people like me said in August, this is a team that they get through their first two games could run the table. Yep. I really thought they were possible. They had a possibility yep. of doing that. So big game. It's not going that direction. Uh, Friday no. night, you've also got Washington at UCLA. Should be interesting. I like Washington there. All right, Saturday. Let's uh, start in the noon window where I think the most interesting game is actually Kentucky at Ole Miss because I just think we're going to find out a lot about Ole Miss playing a, a tough Kentucky team and a Kentucky team that's already road-tested winning at Florida. Um, I like that. I like that matchup, and it's a game we don't see a lot, actually. Yeah, because they, great they crossover just, game. Yeah, they don't. The SEC schedule has just been so, such that we, we we never see that matchup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I Michigan, think uh, of those sorry. two teams. Just quickly on those guys, I think I believe in Kentucky's ability much more to exert their identity onto Ole Miss mm-hmm. and control that game than yeah. than vice versa. Because yeah. of what we said before, Ole Miss, I don't I don't know what to think about them. Right they can now. Dic- they can dictate the style. Yeah, Michigan at Iowa. Iowa has been a disappointment. Um, but I have a sneaking suspicion it's going to be a tough one for Michigan because Iowa will figure out a way to make it ugly and not very fun. Almost a 100% chance that this game is close well, well, well deep into the fourth quarter. Iowa, Iowa's track record of hosting top five teams interference is unreal. I think they've won five of six or five of six they've won outright. So maybe four or five. Uh, so I expect this game to be really close. I think Michigan eventually is just has the talent and the QB, I think, to win this game. Iowa, um, they need to do something about this passing game. I mean, yeah, it's bad. Obvi- obviously, obviously. Uh, also at noon, Oklahoma at TCU. See if Oklahoma can bounce back. The 330 window, you've got Alabama at Arkansas, which we've kind of discussed. Uh, you've got Michigan State at Maryland. We'll see just how bad it gets for Michigan State. You've got Oklahoma State at Baylor. I think that's that's pretty clearly the best game in that afternoon window uh, because, yeah, Oklahoma State is not really been tested yet, and I think this will be a really good test. Yeah, and, and 
Spencer Sanders has played well, but again, like Arkansas Pine Buff, Pine Bluff, Arizona State, these are games that don't tell me too much. Uh, I believe in Baylor. I believe in their defense. I like the way Blake Shapin played last week after two rough games. So I take Baylor in that one. I don't. I don't know what the spread is. It's probably more of a pick'em, but I like Baylor over Oklahoma State. If Oklahoma State wins the game, I think we come back next week and we talk about them as being legit. Who do you have for Wake Forest at Florida State? Just take Wake, you know. And I think about like we would all be saying Wake unanimously if I don't think if they hadn't gotten a little bit too conservative late in that game against Clemson. Um, and if they win that game, everyone's like, obviously Wake wins. So I would still pick Wake in this one. Um, I think their offense is rolling. Defense is pretty bad. But uh, high-scoring game, I would I would pick Sam Hartman over over Travis. I'll take Florida State. I think they've they've got some confidence finally, cool. which is something they've, they've lacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, Primetime window, you've got 7 p.m., LSU at Auburn. Uh, the Auburn, we didn't talk about Auburn much, but <sighs> – yeah, it's ugly. It's not good. Uh, I think, I think actually LSU is is they're going to do what what I thought they were going to do, which is they're they're going to play better as the season goes along because they're just well coached. Yeah. Um, Seven thirty ABC, NC State at Clemson. Obviously, huge test for the quality of NC State and and whether or not they're going to fulfill their promise this season. They, they won the game last year. Huge breakthrough win for Dave Doran. What do you think? It's at Clemson. Now, again, a lot of this stuff is all contingent on what happens with the hurricane. I think there's a high likelihood that that game is played in, in some pretty gnarly conditions. Yeah, Hurricane Ian's already wrecking some havoc on on a lot of games, specifically around the Gulf Coast and, and up the up, up of Florida. Uh, it's a... It's like a, a show us what you're about game for NC State, which not just beat Clemson last year, but as always, I felt like played Clemson tight, even when yeah, Clemson was yeah. rolling. So it's like Dave Doerr knows how to play Clemson. Um, it's a winner-take-all game for the Atlantic. I mean, I know you said you think Florida State can beat Clemson next month but or later in October. I, I, I think this the winner of this game wins the division and, and plays for not just the playoff, but at the very least a New Year's Six game. So highly anticipated. I am picking Clemson but it's not wholeheartedly at all. I think NC State is legitimately, legitimately very good. A very good football team. Not a top four team, but easily a top 12 or 13 team. Yeah, I, th- I agree with that. Um, Who are you taking? Do you know yet? I, I think, I think I'm going to take Clemson. Yeah. I think. Just be, just because it's at home. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there's really not much else in the evening session you don't have a great uh, late game yeah, the pac-12 colorado at arizona arizona state at usc stanford at oregon not a lot of interest in any of those no. so we have gone on for a little longer than we we normally do but there was a lot to talk about today just a lot going on yeah a lot going on in the world of college football things are uh, beginning to percolate and turn interesting I mean, they're always interesting but we're getting to the point where uh we're gonna know it's almost october and, and I, I just think we're becoming very, very smart and intelligent about who, what we know about these teams. We're just really. Well, you're always smart and intelligent. And and we're glad right. that you're here to impart that on us every week. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the College Football Fix this week. We drop new episodes every Tuesday discussing the latest news and poll results from around college football. 
Subscribe to the College Football Fix wherever you listen and find more of our content on usatoday.com and the USA Today Sports Plus app. For producer Emily, Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Walken. Same place, same time next Tuesday. The College Football Fix Podcast. 